Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? This is Lindsay Lerner, and you're listening to The Cost of the Status Quo. More people than ever are questioning why they do what they do and forging their own path. And on this show, I sit down with these entrepreneurs, trailblazers, creatives, and overall awesome beings to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the overall tips and tricks they're using so that the rest of us can do the same. This is The Cost of the Status Quo. Elevate your sound game with Filbert, the perfect upgrade for your recording or office space. Our producer, Andrew, has been pushing for a better recording environment. Say goodbye to basic egg crates and hello to stylish felt tiles that not only reduce 35% of ambient noise, but also show off your unique design sense. And the best part, these tiles are made from recycled bottles, making your recording space both stylish and eco-friendly. Get 10% off at feltright.com with code CSQ10. That's CSQ10. Let's give Andrew and you, our listeners, the top-notch sound that you deserve while making a positive impact on the planet. Share your creative Feltright designs with us and join the sustainable sound revolution. Today, we are here with Sarah Peck. Sarah has built businesses, consulted businesses, grown businesses, and is growing a family. Her most current venture, Startup Parent, is a company focused on the narratives we share and the ones we don't share about work, parenting, and motherhood. Alongside this, she also hosts an award-winning podcast, the Startup Parent Podcast. Sarah runs the Wise Women's Council, an annual leadership program for women to come together honestly while navigating the challenges of working and parenting. Sarah has degrees in psychology and landscape architecture, and she, because of this knowledge, has been able to work on projects that discuss just how spaces influence us and the world around us. This led Sarah to consult with Y Combinator-backed startups and was the catalyst for her current work. Fun fact, Sarah is also a 20-time NCAA All-American swimmer. Today, Sarah is here to share a bit about her story and the tips, tricks, and habits she's learned along the way. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. It would mean the world to me if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed this. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. Oh, thanks for having me. Heck yeah. We'll dive on in pun intended. <laughs> Where did you grow up? I grew up in Palo Alto, California, and I lived there till I was 17. And I moved straight into college. I believe there are some stories about me telling my parents that I would walk myself to kindergarten. Thank you very much. I did not need a grown up to help me. And I see that very, very strongly in my own children. So I'm getting it back in spades now that I'm a parent. My daughter told me, I, I joked, I said, hey, I think that the school's only 0.2 miles away. I bet you could get there. And she goes, well, yeah, if you gave me a map, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> oh my goodness. Kids are so themselves. Like it, that's one of the most brilliant things is you realize how much of who you are is like just in there. It's like deep in there. 100%. And so I think what I'm reading through your bio and background and what I know about you is there's a innate curiosity that's always been there. So I'll speak from my experience, but like what's familiar to me isn't always obvious to me. I have learned over the years that a lot of people call me brave. I don't understand that because it's not my lived experience. My lived experience is more like, I'm messing this up. I'm messing this up. That didn't work. This didn't work. Why am I doing this? Right. And, but from the outside, people are like, you're so brave. You try a lot of things. 
related to entrepreneurship and trying new things, I never identified as an entrepreneur, which you might laugh and people listening might laugh. They'd be like, uh, excuse me, you've been this way your whole life. <laughs> but one of our mottos in our family is try it and see. So yes, I think from a young age, there's been a lot of innate curiosity. And I think that's pretty common to human beings more generally. We just get it beaten out of us in various ways through various systems. Totally. Ugh, I definitely identify when, when you say I haven't identified as an entrepreneur. I have always been curious about that, especially it feels like the last 10-ish years or so, this, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm like, who signs up for this? Who wants to do this? <laughs> and my question off of that would be, was that influenced from growing up in Palo Alto and being around that Silicon Valley geography? Yeah, startup culture. I don't have explicit memories of it because my parents were academics and like my mom and rocket scientists. So my dad went to Stanford and he worked in space systems and building satellites. And my mom has a degree in physics and a master's degree in physics and worked in some economics fields and then stayed home to raise kids and then got back into that. I'm sure it was in the air, the startup culture. In some ways, I was a very oblivious child. So I didn't realize that I lived in Palo Alto. This is the whole fish swimming in water. I wanted to get out of there. I was so tired of people being super competitive. I went to a high school where everyone, like people would stress so much about not getting perfect scores on their SATs. I needed to get out of that environment. It was hyper competitive about without soul, without meaning, like to what end, right? But inside of that, like, was I an entrepreneur in Palo Alto? Let me tell you a tiny story. <laughs> when I was seven, I went around to my neighbor's houses and I told them I would weed their yards for a penny a weed. And then I started like making cookies and selling them and selling lemonade. And my sister and I went, we decided to go park outside of the office buildings at 12 noon because <laughs> over the summer, because all of these workers would come out and we would be able to make a ton of money in an hour. So there was some entrepreneurial innovation, some, some zing in little me. Yeah. Yes. Baby Sarah selling cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Being like, hey, listen, we can make a lot more money at 12 o'clock lunchtime than we can at 8 a.m. <laughs> I'm here for this. And were your were your folks supportive of this? Very. I think one of the the best things that they did actually was some of their money sense, money literacy, economic literacy was really good. So my mom charged us for the ingredients that she bought at the store. And so we had to make like a little sheet of how many chocolate chips we borrowed from her. And then after we made all the sales, we had to pay her back for the resources. So very supportive would be, yes, an understatement. And you said she, she was an educator. Yeah, she worked in, so she's in physics and economics. And then she did, she was a stay-at-home mom for about 10 years. Were there any other activities going on in baby Sarah's life? I was quite an introvert. It's like introversion paired with anxiety, depression, and social like awkwardness. I was on the Organic Gardening Club and I was on the I Love Math Club. And organic gardening is great because you just garden. You don't even have to talk to people. 
And then I spent a lot of time at our home garden. So I grew like a really big garden and I worked in a plant nursery. Where along the way was swimming introduced and that sort of structure? We started swim lessons when we were two. And I probably learned how to swim, like vigorous uh, bicycle kicking swimming when I was four. And then we started swim team. I think our parents started when I was eight. It was so interesting. They told us there was swim team three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And then she didn't want to overwhelm us because it was actually five days a week. And then one day I was like, I want to go to the pool. And it was a Tuesday and I went and I saw everyone practicing. And I was like, mom, you didn't tell me they practice on Tuesdays? Betrayal. Uh, And then I started going five days a week. Do you think being an athlete has assisted you in other areas of your life? A thousand percent. It's, I think it's one of the most important, most pivotal things that I've done. I have a hard time sometimes describing how meaningful it is to me. I loved swimming in high school. I struggled with it a little bit. I loved it. So I worked hard at it. I was also very tall. I still am very tall. Everyone joined sport for different reasons. And there are plenty of people who joined because they wanted to like be more casual about swimming and have something to do with other friends at the pool. And I really wanted to work hard. And so I would get made fun of for working too hard and being too serious. And then I would also get put in like the boys lane and they really did not like me being in the lane with them. Basically like great high school antics, really fun. But water is so meditative, so soothing. And I got to go to college and keep swimming. And I think I had one of those really cool, rare stories where a lot of times women will peak around 16 to 18 years old in various sports. And I started college when I was 17 and I got better every single year. And that was so fun. (laughs) Like, it's so fun and so hard. I lifted weights for the first time. I probably cried every other day. Like, like my body was dying. I like, I couldn't lift my arms over my head. I would wake up in the morning and like roll out of bed and be like, I can't move. I finally told one of my teachers in college, I was like, (laughs) I think I'm just going to accidentally fall asleep in 25% of your classes. And I really don't want to. And forgive me, but I'm trying my best to stay awake. I was so tired. (laughs) I was like, it's not you. (laughs) Incredible. And so you swim high school, swim college, and you studied psych? in undergrad? Mm -hmm. Was there any influence from either of your parents or friends, relatives, anything like that, that made you choose that path? Oh, interesting. My parents are actually scientists. And I remember getting a call. I don't know if it was both of my grandparents, both of my grandfathers or one of them, but I'm sure they both would have said this. Like, psychology is not a real science. You should study a real science. (laughs) Shots fired. Like, be a mathematician. So I was definitely a black sheep in as much as Doing only BC calculus, doing only statistics, it's like, well, you kind of cut yourself short there. I think that there's so much culturally that say like women are bad at math, girls are bad at math. And I will find myself sometimes getting swept up into that and like, oh, it's math. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, I like math, you know? (laughs) And if I'm not, slow down and explain it to me. And it's your job to wait until I get it, right? Like racing past my ability is not doing anyone any favors. And so when I work with women, like in the Wise Women's Council and the community programs that I lead, 
a lot of the time I'll say, no, you can be great at math, like, and you can learn this, like you are capable of learning lots of different things. So we bring in guest teachers, like some of the things that I didn't know anything about, like how to join a board, what the next step in your career is, like, what is cryptocurrency? What is Bitcoin? I mean, it's all going aflame right now, but I see women opt out of these conversations because of that story of like, I'm not good at math. And I hope you know, and people listening know that like, even if you really, really struggle with math, you are still totally welcome and perfectly capable of learning what you need to know about all of the math things. Exactly. Exactly. Let's use swimming as an example. Like, I think everyone deserves to not drown. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, (laughs) baseline, like, we don't want you to die. Like, will you be Michael Phelps? Probably not. Like most of us won't be. In fact, like 99.999% of us will not be. And like, some of us will enjoy leisurely swimming. Some of us will enjoy saunas more. Some of us don't want like don't like showers, like the idea of getting wet sucks, but everyone should not drown. Like you should have that much skill. So that's kind of the, we can teach everyone as much as they need to. For sure. And so you're in undergrad. Where in the world are, are, is this happening? Oh, I went to a small school in Ohio. I did psychology and biology. And one of the things that I studied was the design of environments. So environmental psychology is what I did my senior thesis in, looking at how does the design of the environment influence behavior. If you go into a drugstore, you're not going to see certain, you're going to see like eight different behaviors and you're not going to see like 200 different behaviors. You're probably not going to see people sleeping, right? You're not going to see them taking drugs. But you probably will see them like toddlers screaming, people waiting in line, like people looking at two different things, right? The environment really influences who you are and how you behave. And so I wanted to flip that on its head and go and see if I could help to design great places to live. And this ties back to the organic, you know, being in the organic garden club too, where it's like, oh, (laughs) I could make this for other people. The thread that I see now looking back is really it's about systems thinking and understanding people. Because when you go to design cities and, and urban landscapes and places that people occupy, you really have to stitch together all of these different systems. How does the transportation work? How does the movement work? How, what are all of the civic engineering needs? Like, what are all the different components here? And such an interesting way to, to connect those dots. And did you have any sort of quote unquote plan in mind of what you were going to do with all of this newfound knowledge and power or anything that, again, family pressure, friends? No, in fact, I think that the idea of going to grad school is foisted upon a lot of people as the alternative to figuring out what you're going to do. Like college is such a beautiful experience. However, it is not job preparation. Like it is a different world. You're spending, you know, $50,000 a year learning how to live in a community of people in a beautifully built city, right? And then you leave and you're like, this is not what cities are like. And also, I don't spend 50k a year anymore on this, I have to spend it on something else, and I have to get a job. (laughs) And so I I think I evaded the question of what I was going to do by Mm. learning more. And I love learning. So like, I would get 70 degrees if I could. I um, took on a lot of debt. Mm. And it was sold to me as, you know, everyone takes student loan debt. It's not a big deal. Uh, let's look around at that question. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, people are finding out that's not actually true. And it's right. not great advice. Sure. It's not a good idea to take 100K in debt to fund an education mm. when your first job might pay an average of $30,000 a year. 
what was the catalyst then for diving into the consulting that that you've done and starting to venture out on your own? One of the things that I learned is in architecture specifically and in the design world is that what you are doing is you're dreaming up a future that other people haven't opted into yet and you're trying to sell it. Because you're building like, hey, I have a vision for a building. It's never been done this way before. You know, you got to take different stakeholders, ideas and dreams in mind. You've got to communicate. You've got to communicate across all these different languages. You have to do renderings, images, visuals. And when you're just starting, you don't have a final building. You have to do it through visual selection and starting to get the flavor of the quality of the materials and the styles. And you're talking with someone else about what are we going to do together here? What are we going to create? But it's, it's a long sales process. And while I was working in architecture, I discovered that a lot of these brilliant, brilliant thinkers, brilliant, brilliant designers, would have all of these gorgeous images, but then wouldn't have great words to go with it. And that became my like sweet spot was helping to translate in language, not just in like English language, but in plain language, because mm-hmm. there's so much jargon inside of each industry. And so people would be like, we're going to sublimate the like architectural potential of the superficial facing glossy surfaces. And I was like, what are you saying? Like you right. want bright windows, you know, like. <laughs> don't do that. (laughs) Totally. Totally. And so like describing it in non-jargony, non-cliche original language was where I kind of found a sweet spot. And then that also coincided with the rise of social media. So, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these firms are like, we'll never be on Facebook. That's a terrible place to be. And (laughs) then also, you see, what you, we, we know the future now. We know what has right. happened. Businesses and brands are using social media a lot. But I started using social media for my own writing about architecture. And then okay. senior leaders at the company were like, how did you do that? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> they were so smart in ways that I think young me didn't know. Like, what are the consequences? Mm-hmm. You know, what do we have to be careful of. There's a lot of reciprocal learning there. And I ended up carving out a space where I could become a freelancer and go off on my own to help people with writing, communications, and social media. That's so cool. And I think it's interesting too, because a lot of of my background has been in the music industry. And when you're talking about translating, I've always looked at the musicians that I've worked with as inherent entrepreneurs. That's They make something out of nothing every single time that they pick up an instrument. But watching them go on stage and attempt to have banter or attempt to say, hey, please come to my merch booth and fumbling through those sales pitches, <laughs> just totally messing up. I'm like, ah, oh, but you're, you're a genius. And I wish that I had half the ability that you had. And so... That that resonates for sure in terms of being able to to find that that in between that translation. That's really cool. Watching people fumble with sales, sales is hard, but it's also not because if you are trying to get something or extract something from someone else, you will feel very uncomfortable. That's the part of sales that people don't like. I have to get you to buy this CD, and it's kind of an inherent <laughs> assumption of like. Like you're going to lose $17 and you're not going to like the CD. Shake that all off. Sales is about searching inside yourself 
until you find a genuine reason why you believe this person wants what you have. And once I'm like, you're going to love Rihanna's new song. It's incredible. Wakanda forever. I just sat in my car and listened to it for four hours. It's so beautiful because of X, Y, and Z. Did you know that like part of the movie is about the matriarchy and they do stuff, some patriarchy stuff at the end, which is kind of bad, but like overall, it's like, it reminds me of yoga and the song is so good. I just cried and you should listen to it. You're going to be like, this sounds amazing. Where do I find it? It's not like you have to buy this and give me $17 now. It's 2013. You're in New York. You're consulting with all these different YC-backed startups, all these startups in general. What was it that made you take that leap? And did you have any systems, structures, practices in place that allowed you to be able to to do that and be willing to take that that risk? The beginning part, I felt like I would define what I did as freelancing. I think freelancing and consulting are two branches of working for yourself that involve trading work for time, trading Hmm. your output, your results. Like in freelancing, I did a lot of ghostwriting for CEOs. And then along the side, I was building some of my own platforms. So I was blogging for myself. I built some courses online, taught a writing program a couple times a year. I did some speaking I taught some workshops. I was I went with General Assembly and Skillshare and other places okay. where I would teach online and and put together like a package of products and services and skills where I did some freelancing and some product development, mostly under my own name. And then in working with YC companies, I took those communications. So I was ghostwriting for CEOs and I had people reach out and say, hey, we need a lot of communications help for a startup. That rolled into the the freelancing part of it. And I got to work on a bunch of PR projects and like really getting the word out about new startups and realized that like my psyche, it's not good. That's not a good match. (laughs) I, I, I am not a fast twitch person and like getting email pings every like 10 seconds just causes my anxiety to like boil over. I I started losing sleep because I was like, oh my God, I have to reply to people really fast. I'm never, I don't think I ever will be a fast emailer. I can try. (laughs) <laughs> it's not on like my priority list of things to learn how to do. I'm, a, I'm a definitely a slow, long form, <laughs> deeper yeah. thinker. Yeah. And then I got hired by, I was a six employee at a Y Combinator backed. That's what YC means for mm-hmm. people listening. Y Combinator backed education company. And I joined as part of their content marketing branch. And my translation skills were all about, they were teaching people how to learn to code and build websites and build web apps. I would explain that to people. Like, what does that mean? What will you learn? Like, why is this important? What does it look like? And then from there, what were those next steps to really branching out completely and having your own, your own business? It's a convoluted story. This is why I think that entrepreneurship is so interesting. A lot of people think, oh, I've got to have a big idea and then I'm going to go build it and then it's going to work. No, no. And no, like most of the things, like maybe actually it should be maybe, (laughs) maybe, maybe, I don't know. But I... The experience of being pregnant at a startup was so incredibly challenging. Mm. I kept looking around thinking like, why is, did nobody tell me about this? Where are the women in tech? Like, is this, right. does, it's like my pregnancy extra hard? Like, what's going on? And I just took all of these notes. I started mm. journaling every day. 
journaling might be a loose word for like venting or ranting, <laughs> but I, you know, tried to write everything down. I, I was like, imagine. holy moly, I did not realize that you wanted to barf your brains out for yeah. 20 weeks. Like this is awful. And I mean, I would walk around Manhattan, like it took me sometimes like an hour and a half to get to work because I would stop and I would vomit in like bushes. It'd be like, okay, oh, we're almost there. Oh, no, we're not there. Like I stopped right. in Whole Foods to get an orange juice and then I had to grab one of their paper bags and puke mm. in it. And I was like, this is just insane. Like what's right. going on? So I pitched Writing House. I pitched a literary agency about writing a book. The book turned into me interviewing a bunch of women for the book. Yeah. Those interviews turned into, oh, I should you know, publish these. And I started a podcast. And then from the podcast, it grew into a business where I Mm -hmm. gathered this community of parents, mostly moms who are founders and leaders and like business pioneers, but also managers and VPs that are all kind of looking around being like, what have we gotten ourselves into? And why does nobody talk about this and motherhood? Women receive less than 1% of venture capital funding in startups in the United States. It's probably worse as you zoom out globally. So less than 1% of money goes to women. So these problems that Sarah's talking about in terms of <laughs> having nobody to talk to, that's a systemic issue. And so were those some of the struggles that you were dealing with is being in tech, which is a primarily male-dominated space, and then being lost and confused and angry and agitated by yourself? (laughs) (laughs) That, yes. And I think that motherhood is such a wake-up call, too, for understanding, like, holy moly, like, this system's really rigged. You can maybe delude yourself into believing, like, uh, women and men are equal, and we can can do everything men can do just Mm -hmm. better. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. If it's a podcast, I just like made a like face, Um, but like, and it's just, it's not like the, the deck is stacked against women. And then sadly, it's also, there's so many consequences for men because of that distortion and discrimination. And like men are not like, they may be getting more of the economic pie, but they are not getting, let's be real. Men aren't totally. allowed to cry. That sucks. Like men don't know how to deal with their anger. That sucks. Men hate their jobs. Men die of suicide. Men die of heart disease. Like they're not winning. So totally. when I talk about sexism and discrimination against mothers, sometimes people say like, well, like, well, what about the dads? And I'm like, yo, listen, this is all of us in here. You just, you have the power. So right. we're going to need y'all to, mm-hmm. to like undo that so that we can right. help you too. Exactly. And so Startup Parents' mission is, and to quote, build the next version of what work in parenting can look like. Could you share a bit with our listeners about how things have been done and now what you're doing as a part of changing that? You know, The place I'll start is by talking about how we've eliminated 50% of our innovation and our capacity for leadership by Mm -hmm. taking women out of the equation and more because we also have taken old people out of the equation. We There's ageism, there's discrimination against mothers, there's discrimination against single moms, there's Mm -hmm. even discrimination against child-free and childless moms. And when you systematically remove that many people from the economic table, like we all lose. Totally. We don't get innovation. Like I would rather have 100% of our 
potential workforce building interesting things. If we're thinking about entrepreneurship, why not make it accessible to everyone? Why do you have to be married to a dude in order to get like to be able to work or have babies? That is messed up. Like my dude friends, I love you. And like, (laughs) (laughs) yes. So that's the, like the innovation capacity, but also the leadership capacity. And one of the philosophies we're building here at Startup Parent, and this is what I teach inside of the Wise Women's Council, is answering the question, what does leadership look like if it doesn't look like what we see out there in the world, which is a masculine power over a very like zero-sum pie. If you sure. get something, I will lose something. And when we look at leadership inside of the Wise Women's Council, when I work with parents, the things that we focus on are things like your emotional capacity is really wise. Your ability to know, discern, and claim that you are tired is not weak. It's intuitive. We will change the world by understanding our emotions. Now, that doesn't mean crying whenever and wherever. That doesn't mean being (laughs) emotional all the time. It means being able to listen in and say, oh, this is this emotion. It needs an expression. This is what my intuitive inside wisdom is telling me. It's also more collaborative and it's more communal. We have lost the ability to be in community in the society. We are, look at how many people just sit in cars alone. Like we can't even carpool together. We're all inside of cars. We're inside of cubicles. Mm -hmm. We're inside of single family housing. Inside of that single family housing, we're like, why don't we have four bedrooms? Because like, we can't, heaven forbid, we share a room anymore. And we're so neurotic as a society and Mm -hmm. so alone. And we're afraid of asking for help. We're afraid of leaning on each other. We're afraid of being seen as weak when the foundation of connection and happiness and joy and friendship is about being able to say, I don't have this. Can you help me? And it's something as simple as the cup of sugar or the cup of milk. <laughs> but people are are more comfortable buying a bag of sugar from Amazon mm. than in going to their neighbor and being like, I don't know you. My name is Sarah and <laughs> I need to inhale a bag of sugar. The other guests that we've had on here, very intentionally diverse group of people in terms of age, race, ethnicity, all the things. And the common thread is, hey, for my entire life, I've listened to them, other, they, whoever these imaginary friends are. And when I finally took the time to get quiet and listen to whatever this intuition is, voice, your imaginary friends, whatever you want to call it, once I made that decision, once I made that choice, then all of a sudden the whole world opened up. That's so well put. One of the questions, this is our core value, our first core value is we don't have to do things the way they've always been done. And right, this is your podcast, same, same. And when you do finally listen and say like, who told me this? Where does this idea come from? Is it true for me? Is it true for me right now? Is it true for me again, right? Mm. This discernment, this ability to listen in and to evaluate and be curious, examine right. question is so important. I want to say one thing about the previous topic. When I talk about men and women's leadership, I'm as- actually talking about masculine and feminine because these aren't exclusive to mm. 
a certain sex or a certain gender. They're available to all of us. And so the traditional guy inside of a very masculine world is also missing the ability to be in community, the ability to like listen more deeply within, the ability to be quieter, the ability to be the opposite of assertive, right? These are all qualities that create a well-rounded leadership. And women are missing are either over asked to be assertive and domineering and lean in and all of this, but, or are too soft and don't know and haven't learned how to be in that more quiet authority. The one with, for which if you have children, it may take six years and then you really start to learn the skill of when they say, I want the dino Cheerios. And you're like, that's not happening. I'm so sorry. You're frustrated, but we're not doing that tonight, which is not a skill I had in the office. But now with my kids having 10 paper cuts worth of whining, I'm like, you know, we're not doing it. A hundred percent. Ever since I've stepped into a, a parenting role, I have definitely become 10 times more effective at work. And a lot of the times I have to speak to my coworkers, leadership, bosses, whoever, in the same way that I speak to my six-year-old. And that's how that's the only circumstance in which they respond. Correct. It's really actually a useful skill. I actually would like it if more people spoke to me that way. There are times when I'm like, what are you saying? Please just say it. Okay, you don't want to do it. It's great. You can just tell me and like, I don't have any more emotional capacity to take that personally. It's actually very good for me that I know what you want. Correct. Exactly. And I love how you put it on, on the Startup Parent website. There's no one picture of motherhood or fatherhood or becoming a parent. That's huge. The other side of that is like parent use of parenting has made me such a better, um, so much better at talking to folks and like being on these teams. I think sometimes we over glamorize, like we can go too far in one or another direction and it'd be like, oh, parenting made me so much better at everything. No, it didn't. I, my, I, I've lost my brain. Like I cannot remember crap anymore. Like I forget that, get people's names all the time, but it has made me more generous and it has made me more kind. And I discovered the secret loophole, which is that if I surround myself with four women, out of the five of us, one of us will remember. And that's the power of community, is that I now need 20% of my brain. I just need four more people with me at all times. What are some ways that you're going against the grain in your personal life and any tips or tricks that may have come out of that that might be helpful to other folks who are listening? Yeah, I think the first most important thing is my partner and I have a very, very equal partnership, equitable partnership. I could big not difference. do what I'm doing without that. Uh, yes, big difference. Equal and equitable, depending on which part, which sphere we're looking at. Totally. But um, it's right. Like you're, We're not going to make the same amount of money. We vary mm-hmm. in that. I've made far less than him. I've made far more than him. We've taken time off, et cetera. But we look at what does it look like to be in this as a team and who does what parts. And I like, it is so deeply satisfying to me that I do not do school forms. I don't do school emails. I do not do doctor's appointments. Like those are in his domain. And when they call me, I'm like, they're going to call him next. And I can just turn the <laughs> phone over. Like, I don't have to know. Yes. And it astonishes people because we put his name and his phone number on all of the forms and then they will still call me. And they're like, how did they get your number? And I'm like, I don't know, but they think that problem. they're supposed to call mom. And I just, 
He's like my secretary. I could just get calendar invitations for the things I have to show up at. And like, it is blissful. But part of it is, I'm going to give a huge shout out to Eve Rodsky. Uh, she talks about in the domestic sphere, there is planning, execution, conception. So there's like thinking of the, there's the idea, there's the planning of it, and then there's the execution. And so often in the like, in the, the stupid play that is like husband and wife, the wife is always the one nagging the husband about the execution part. And <laughs> right? Like, why don't you pick up the like, the blue, the big blueberries? So-and-so likes big blueberries, not small blueberries, right? Yes. It's like, why don't you just know this? And it's like, oh, there's too many details. But it's because often the woman is holding the conception and the planning and then just like delegating execution things arbitrarily to her husband. And so is doing 90% of the work and then also getting angry. The execution doesn't happen the way. And like, have you ever, if you've ever worked with a teammate, like micromanaging them about the execution of something is really unpleasant for all involved. And so the Rodsky talks about like, no, within a domain, one person needs to be in charge of the idea, the execute, like planning and the execution. So like, if you're on groceries, all of it, every, that's my domain by the yeah. way. Um, so I keep the whole list. I know what people like. I have the dinner menus. I totally. do all of the grocery shopping. I do the deliveries. I put the food away. Mm-hmm. Like I know what the lunches are. I know when we're running out of things. And like, it's very satisfying. Cause I'm like in charge of it all. And totally. my husband, when he wants food, he just makes requests like, Hey, I'm out of this and this. And he'll put it on the list on the mm-hmm. whiteboard. And then I add it into the rotation, totally. but we have divided up our domains so that yeah. so it's great. That's huge. And it's such an an important thing in a world in which we have to make, in my opinion, too many decisions that you've already decided who does what, when done. Correct. There, she has this amazing game. So it's the cards. It's the, they're called the fair play cards and there's a hundred of them. And her tip at the beginning is like, when you get the stack of a hundred cards, your job is not to divide them equally. Your job is to eliminate as many as possible before you begin the game. And I'm like, yes, like, amen, (laughs) right? And it's like, if you don't care about lawn care or you don't have a garden, get rid of the card, right? Like, burn it down. Burn it down. (laughs) Get rid of the ones you don't care about. I love it. (laughs) And that's the radical thinking of like, we don't have to do things the way they've always been Mm -hmm. done. Like a couple other examples, we live in a smaller house on purpose because Mm -hmm. there's so much less work to do. We live in a smaller house closer to the school. So there's so much less commuting to do. People really try to optimize for the maximum everything. And if you get the biggest house, it's going to be further away, which means more commuting, which means more cars, which means you have to earn more money, which means you have to work more hours. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, I'm trapped. It's a long Before we wrap up, we do ask every guest two questions. What is the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? And what is the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten? I think most advice is useless if people haven't listened to you and if you haven't listened to yourself. So Mm. one of the things that we do in the Wise Women's Council and in the communities that I run is we don't allow advice unless it's explicitly asked for. And even in that situation, we ask people to ask three or four thoughtful questions before they jump into advice. A lot of people don't know what the the thing they're asking is really about. And until you really go in and get deep, advice is useless. And then the worst advice probably comes from bro-y marketers who have done something once, think they're God's gift to humanity and 
then want to teach you all about how to do it, not realizing that it's 2022 and it's no longer 2012 and trying to replicate anything from 2012 just won't work. Plus Mm. also they might've just been lucky and they're not humble enough to say like, who knows why this actually worked. If people have listened this far to the interview on Twitter and Instagram, well, Twitter, Twitter's dying, but I'm a raging feminist writer. So you can follow me in my newsletter because I like sure to can. go on rants. Yep. Yes. I get, there's a new rant out today that was really delightful. It's math, but fun. And I want you to, I want, I really want to know what you think of, it's called um, the backwards logic of parenting math. I will track it down. We will link it in the show notes and we'll make it happen. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening to The Cost of the Status Quo and learning the wisdom, stories, and ideas that will have you feeling inspired and ready to take on the world. If you've enjoyed this, please remember to share, rate, and review. It means the world to me and the team putting it all together. If you're looking for more information, you can find us at costofthestatusquo.com or on Instagram at costofthestatusquo. If you've got any questions or curiosity about me, you can find me at lindsaylearner.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-L-E-R-N-E-R.com or on Instagram at lindsaylearner. Thanks again for listening. Hope you have an awesome day.